0: You can explore an exclusive collection of case law at Decisus Law Reports. Browse a comprehensive collection of nearly 14,000 reports of Irish legal judgments delivered since 2011. Visit Decisis.ie to find out more. Hello and you're very welcome to episode 52 of The Fifth Court, a podcast on legal affairs presented by myself, Peter Leonard Barrister.
1: Myself, Mark Tottenham Barrister and editor of Decisis Law Reports.
0: Mark, good to see you as always. And last week, you will recall, we had Irish Times journalist Ronan McCreevy in studio to talk about his brilliant book, The Kidnapping which he wrote with his fellow Leitrim scribe, Sunday independent journalist, Tommy Conlon. It's a a fantastic piece of work, Mark, and we really enjoyed that interview.
1: It was very interesting, and interesting from a legal point of view, as well as the wider uh, kidnapping.
0: No, the detail in relation to the expert evidence, etc., admissibility of evidence and as well reflecting on a very turbulent period in recent Irish history. Well, today we are going to talk about an area that will be of great interest to our listeners, especially those who are involved in sport or love sport or are interested in sport generally. And this is sports arbitration, which is becoming more and more important in everyday life, I think. And uh, we are joined by two of the main players in this area. Colleagues, Eva Farrelly and Susan Hearn. EFA is a member of the Central Hearings Committee of the GAA and is also on the panel of arbiters and mediators for the Sports Dispute Solutions Ireland group. And also Susanna Hearn, who was head of legal for World Rugby no less, and has huge experience as an arbitrator at the Court of Arbitration for Sport in Lausanne. Mark, this is this is one for all the sports fans Absolutely. out there. Yeah, yeah. Now, really good, really good, uh, really looking forward to talking to them. But first, we're going to deal with three cases that you've identified from the Decisis website. In our first case this week, we look at a tax case. Investors in fishing vessels had purchased fishing capacity. You're going to have to explain what that is, Mark. And sought to set this off against tax as a capital expense. Well, that I have a handle on. The High Court had to decide whether it was a qualifying Authorization. This is the case of Revenue Commissioners against Mull Glen Limited, and it's a decision of Ms
1: Justice Emily Egan. That's correct. So, as you said, it's a purchasers of fishing vessels. These are these huge fishing vessels that they keep in Killybegs, and they had not only purchased the vessels themselves, but they had also purchased fishing capacity, which I think. The best analogy is it's a bit like a milk quota. There's a certain amount of fish that you're allowed to fish every year. And each of the investors had paid in the region of €7 million towards this fishing capacity. This was not a small investment. And what they were trying to establish was that this qualified as a capital expense to be set off against income tax in their uh, tax returns. Revenue commissioners took the view that it was not a qualifying authorization. There's a whole definition in the, the CAT Act, as far as I can see, about what does qualify. And it tends to be more things like intellectual property and that kind of thing. So the, the revenue Commissioners said this is not a qualifying authorization and the High Court upheld the revenues view. So she went with the revenue decision exactly. in relation yeah. to that. Okay,
0: moving on to the second case... And this concerns the parents of a child who were unhappy with an assessment of need made by the HSE. Obviously a sad case, this. The assessment had taken place in the absence of a diagnostic assessment. The circuit court asked the court of appeal to rule on whether the HSE's standard operating procedure was in breach of the duties to this child.
1: Yeah, I mean, this case and the next one we'll discuss are both in this general area. And the peculiar thing about the what, what the HSE standard operating procedure is that they conduct this assessment of need in relation to disability in the absence of a proper diagnosis of the child. So they look at the circumstances without looking at the diagnosis. And, um, This was um, challenged by the family and the court in this case said, no, clearly that this assessment of need could not be properly carried out without an appropriate diagnosis in the first place. Okay,
0: and I should have said this is the case of AB versus the HSC and it's a court of appeal decision from Mr. Justice Collins. Okay, in the next case, a deciding officer had refused an application for a domiciliary care allowance in relation to the care of a child And this decision was affirmed on appeal. The child was then diagnosed with a serious disability and the carer asked for the decision to be reviewed. The court had to decide whether the original decision could be reviewed in light of a later diagnosis. This is the case of Little versus the Chief Appeals Officer. It's a Supreme Court decision
1: of Mr Justice Wolfe. That's right. So, as you said, there had been an application for domiciliary care allowance by the family of this child it was refused at first instance. There's an appeal procedure within the social, social Welfare Code and they lost the appeal. Then there was a diagnosis of disability that obviously they, they felt should change the view. And so they, they challenged the original decision in light of the diagnosis. But the nature of the code is such that the appeal has to be of the original decision. And because the diagnosis hadn't been obtained at the time of the original decision, It effectively meant they had to go and make a fresh application rather than appealing the original one. Okay, very good, Mark.
0: Back shortly with barristers Aoife Fowley and Susan Ahern. Silence in the
1: Fifth Court. We are delighted to be joined in the studio today by two eminent sports arbitrators, each uh, from a different field. Susan Ahern is a barrister and arbitrator. She has a number of uh, distinctive titles. She was the head of legal affairs for World Rugby from 2009 to 2016. She's now the independent judicial chair for World Wheelchair Rugby. She was the independent vice chairman of the appeal body of the Irish Horse Racing Regulatory Board. She's on the appeal board of the British Horse Racing Authority. She's an arbitrator on the court of arbitration for sport in Lausanne in Switzerland and she has many years experience as an arbitrator of the Court of Arbitration for Sport and she was appointed to the CAS Anti-Doping Division for the Tokyo Olympic Games in 2020 that were of course held in 2021. And we're also joined by Efa Farrelly, who is a junior counsel uh, specialising in civil litigation. She has an active involvement in the GAA as a member of the Central Hearings Committee of the GAA, which is the disciplinary committee of first instance for national competitions, having spent a number of years on the panel of arbitrators for the Disputes Resolution Authority. She's on the panel of arbitrators and mediators with Sports Dispute Solutions Ireland, and Disciplinary Hearing Chairperson of Tug-of-War Ireland. And she's on the board of Park Talchon CLG and the Redevelopment Committee for Park Talchon Stadium in Navan. So thank you to it's Susan and Aoife for joining us here.
2: Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Thanks, Pete, Mark. Peter. Delighted.
1: Oh, great to meet you guys. <laughs> so can we uh, start with you, Aoife? Um What what got you into arbitra- sports arbitration
3: Well, uh, Mark, I suppose I started out my career in in law in general, and I worked very closely with a very leading GAA legal mind, Liam Keane, who set up the Disputes Resolution Authority. And I suppose every time I was uh, instructed by him, I ended up talking about GAA and he saw that I had an interest in it. And he had just set up the Disputes Resolution Authority, and,
1: and when you say this Disputes Resolution Authority, what what is that? I mean, what what kind of disputes are referred to it?
3: Right. Um, so it's it's the arbitration court, I suppose, if you like, for uh, the GAA. And uh, it was set up in 2005 following there had been a number of uh, referrals to the courts, to the general courts, injunctions, applications for injunctions to, to the general courts. And I suppose the GAA felt that that probably wasn't, and the courts too felt that that probably wasn't the appropriate way to deal with sports issues.
1: And what kind of injunction would commonly have come before the courts before the Dispute Res- Re- resolution Authority was set up?
3: Well, I think probably the straw that broke the camel's back, for want of a better phrase, was a player who was involved in uh, an inter county match. In 2004, and he was sent off, and he brought an injunction application to the High Court to allow him to play an interim a- application so, to the High so Court. So, even in
1: amateur sport, people were going to, to that level to. Yeah, that to, happened
3: in 2004, right. yeah. tell
1: them there's no such thing as amateur sport.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> and you never mentioned in your introduction to EFA, you never mentioned the Royal County. Well, that's very I true. I mean, eater. for <laughs> all the, 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 the myriad of accomplishments, <laughs> you have to mention the Royal County you're we talking about Aoife. We? Well, <laughs> Navin, that's not bad. <laughs> that's not bad, okay. <laughs>
3: Don't worry, I'll get it in, Peter.
1: <laughs> so just so, so if we could turn to you, Susan, what, what brought you into to sports arbitration? Was that well, always I, an interest?
2: I came at it from the other side. I came at it from sport. I, I played volleyball. That was my sport. And I became president of Volleyball Ireland probably too young. So really, I kind of had it, my outing through sports administration, as well as being a lawyer as well, and then moved swiftly into being legal counsel for world rugby uh, and I was there for a long time, ultimately culminating in, in being general counsel there. So I kind of came at it from all sides, uh, yeah. really. Would,
1: would that have been around the time that rugby moved from being an amateur to a professional? Uh, yeah,
2: yeah. So, well it was a little bit after that. So the, the game went open in 1995 and then um, as it was International Rugby Board at the time, they moved over to Ireland and I joined them in 2001. And they'd only just set up the legal department of one. And I was the uh, the second <laughs> the second lawyer on the blocks. And uh, so that was really uh, at a time when sports law didn't really exist. And it, it was just something that I really was delighted that I kind of fell into as a profession.
1: And And was there already an arbitration system in place or did you have to set that up as well?
2: So there was a formative um, structure in place and um, the disciplinary regulation effectively for, for World Rugby, Regulation 17. And it's it hasn't changed fundamentally since then in terms of the structure. And it's a very prescribed structure. And also the other aspect of it uh, is that it's universal. So it doesn't matter whether you're in Belfast, Ballydohab, or in or in, in Bangladesh, the same rules uh, apply. Now, there's obviously been iterations over the years, but it comes with um, an independent structure as well, particularly when it's transformed into the international field, like in, in the Six Nations or in uh, a Rugby World Cup, which we've obviously just had and won't maybe talk about Ireland's <laughs> performance, <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately.
1: But again, what, what kind of dispute would commonly come before you? What's the most common sort of issue that arises?
2: I suppose if you're looking at disputes, the main thing is is, is breaches of foul play on field. And that's the regime that I'm talking about that has a very distinctive structure. It has an independent judiciary. It has, uh, you know, there's formalized prosecution and so on. And that's very much because it is a professional sport. And then there are iterations of that as you go down. And
1: and are these borders kind of civil complaints or are they disciplinary issues if you're talking about foul play?
2: No, it's immediate. It's if there's a red card, automatic hearing. If there's two yellow cards, automatic hearing. And there's also a sighting process which goes on as well, Um, certainly at the top end of the game, where you have sighting commissioners appointed to matches and they are effectively off-field referees. So if something isn't captured by the referee or it is signalled for a later review, then they'll look at that and can refer it.
0: Can I just go back to to Aoife, and I don't know whether you can give any secrets away. You talked about a big player in 2004. I'm trying to um, recommend (laughs) at (laughs) the moment to see what what, what one that was in particular. But in terms of, let's say, the GAA, and Mark made reference to the fact that it's amateur sport, but the GAA is huge, 80,000 people in Crow Park. You know, the the stakes couldn't be higher for players and they will go to, to great extremes. We we often talk about in the law, you know, family law being high on emotion. I work in employment law, can all, which can often be high in emotion, people losing their job, etc. But sport, yeah. people get very passionate about the sport. That's so how do does that do. work for an arbitrator like your good self?
3: Well, I suppose if I use the example myself of the committee that I sit on, the Central Hearings Committee, the rules provide that you are not entitled to legal representation at that level but you are entitled to be represented by a member of your club or unit. And if that member of your club or unit happens to be a lawyer, well, that's to your advantage. And invariably, nearly every single case would have a member of the club or unit that is a lawyer that would represent them. So they do take it very seriously. You have cases where players are going to miss out on potentially an All-Ireland or a club All-Ireland or representing their club or their parish or their town or their county. Uh, so they do take it very seriously. So um, and, and
0: the fact that they're not getting paid, yeah. I mean, that is the reward you know, to play at the highest level and to suddenly have trained all year long and maybe you did something, maybe there was an infraction of some sort. But the penalty can be disproportionate in certain cases. And then in other cases, the laws must be applied.
3: Yes, yeah, yeah. Well, the rule book is very clear. And I suppose if you take it in the legal context, we're a creature of statute to the same way as maybe the WRC or um or other statutory bodies so we're governed completely by the rule book and can only apply the penalties and um the discipline as set out in the rule book the official guide
0: is that problematic i mean i have in in a previous life i've served on certain disciplinary panels for for other sports etc mm-hmm. and often you're boxed in a small bit by the rules you know sometimes you need a bit more discretion. Now, maybe I'm being unfair to say that to you, Eva. but I found my own experience, certain cases where cases were made, but the rule was very clear. And sometimes you felt that you couldn't use your discretion the way you wanted.
3: Yeah. yeah. It,
0: can that be the case? It
3: can be difficult, Peter. Yeah, that can be a, a problem. But I suppose if there's too much discretion allowed, then nobody knows where they stand, particularly in an amateur sport. So um, Yeah, so
0: things things have to be kind of kept on on an even track. And and yourself, Susan, just in terms of arbitration, and you're also associated with the Court of Arbitration for Sport.
2: So you have the World Anti-Doping Code, which sports sign up to, and all of the Olympic sports have to have signed up to it. And that mandates, all of the rules apply equally to every sport, and that mandates that the final resting place for the final decision is with the Court of Arbitration.
1: So even though it's called, called the Court of Arbitration, it's actually more to do with disciplinary issues. Uh, I mean, it's not it's not disputes between players or contractual issues. It's more to do with doping.
2: It depends, I think, is the honest answer. And each sport will decide, with the exception of doping, each sport will decide whether the Court of Arbitration has an involvement or a place within its framework. So, for example, if you look at rugby, then the court uh, will apply in the context of doping, but also in relation to sevens rugby, because that is an Olympic sport, but it doesn't apply to anything else because they are contained within its own rules. So each sport can decide what it wants to go ultimately to fall within the remit of the court of arbitration or not. So there's no one size fits all. But you must have an arbitration clause either in the rules or in a specific agreement in order to invoke the jurisdiction of the court. It's, it's not willy-nilly. It has to be well thought through.
1: And are there any types of disputes that, or, or issue that that aren't amenable to to arbitration? I mean, I remember years ago there was the, the the infamous spear tackle on Brian O'Driscoll, which would seem to be something that might well find its way into civil court if somebody had chosen to bring it there. I mean, is that something that would be dealt with in arbitration, or would you ever say this is something that needs to be dealt with by civil process?
2: I, I no, in that particular one, and because it was rugby, and because I was there at the time the sporting rules effectively uh, worked through that process so the the, the the players involved were were sanctioned and what ultimately happened is that the sport looked at the rules and said actually we need to we need to we need to make spear tackles much more central as an issue and let's look at the sanctioning that applies and so they applied then education and stronger sanctions and ultimately spear tackles if you look at it today have more or less gone out of the game. Yep. That's not to say that in in certain cases on-field matters can't end up in the courts if they are sufficiently serious. But you will always have that parallel, the sport deciding who's allowed in our tent mm. and who are we going to keep in and who are we going to kick out. And then you have whatever criminal or civil process can can work along beside it.
1: And you've worked obviously in a number of different sports and you've experienced of arbitra- sports arbitration in a number of different countries. I mean, Do you see some processes working much more efficiently, much more satisfactorily than others, or do they all follow a similar kind of process?
2: Again, it's not a one-size-fits-all, but there are certain, um, I suppose, consistencies that you see in the good uh, structures, which are making sure that they have independent decision-makers. I think that's of paramount importance, so that whoever is making the decision is independent, not just of the parties, but also independent of the, the sport itself. Having the ability to appeal, making sure that, you know, natural justice provisions are, are dealt with. Um, and, and Aoife touched on, on some of those about right to be heard or not. So you actually
1: people from a different sporting code to hear issues relating to, to that particular well, sport? I mean, the- well,
2: they may have no involvement in sport. They may have had some involvement in the particular sport in the past, but now have no connections with okay. it. They could come from elsewhere or they could have particular expertise, be it in classification if it's a Paralympic sport be it in doping or whatever it might be,
0: and Efa, can I can I just come back to you in relation to that? You are on the panel of arbitrators and mediators for the Sports Dispute Solutions Ireland, which was an arbitration board set up maybe about fifteen years ago, is it?
3: That's right. Yeah, I think yeah. it was originally called called Just Sport.
0: Just Sport. Oh. That was it. And believe it or not, I did the first case on that. Mm. Yeah, a basketball club in Killarney. Uh, okay. That was that was that was the celebrated cause. We'll say no more about how it went. But that is a fantastic body. And as Susan has said, I mean, you bring in people with different sporting backgrounds. So, I mean, you will get, in order to hear, let's say, a GAA dispute, if it goes there, it'll be a rugby person, a fencing person, a racing person. It can be, you know, somebody from sailing. It's different sporting people. They have a feel for sport, but they have different expertise. Isn't that it?
3: Yeah, well, I think ultimately in those type of cases, the principles, the same principles apply no matter what the sport. There's a rule book, or there is a set of maybe um, an agreement, a contract, if you like, and you just apply it. And it doesn't really matter what your sport is once you're able to distill the issues and 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 hear from both parties, and then make the decision based on that. So,
0: and you can have, I mean, I, I know from my own experience, you can have one arbitrator. Mm. Or you can go for three arbitrators. Right, yeah. What is the, the the preferred choice? Is it three or one?
3: I think it depends on the significance of the case. I did one case where there were three um, and I've, I've done two or three where there's only been one And the case where there were three arbitrators, there were in fact, I think, 23 complainants in that case. So that's why it was deemed appropriate to have three arbitrators in that case.
0: And everybody lawyered up?
3: Yes. Well, sorry, all 23 applicants were represented by the one person. One person,
0: absolutely, yeah. But it
3: it was a similar issue for all 23 cases. That's why they were heard together.
0: But in that body, it is generally people would be legally represented. They
3: would, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. Okay. And there was uh, just going back to kind of rugby and your own sports, Susan, and I I know you're involved in loads of different sports. One of the big issues prior to the Rugby World Cup that has just passed was the Owen Farrell scenario. Do you remember that? Yes. Well, it was just where he had been suspended. Yes. And then there was an appeal. And there was a famous English QC who acted for him, who apparently was, you know, was was wonderful and managed to kind of make the Australian representative and the Kiwi representative change their minds. And then that was put to a review again. And I think the International Rugby Board overturned that yet again. So there seemed to be a little bit of inconsistency in that. Well,
2: no, I wouldn't agree with that. What you have there is the exercise of the intervention of world rugby under its rules in a ci- circumstance that has met the threshold of seriousness for it to intervene because they don't like doing that. That's it's not something an international federation wants to do with its members. But where a particular threshold of seriousness is met, as it was in the Owen Farrell case, then they have the ability to step in and say, actually, what happened here doesn't fit within the parameters of our rules and we want you to have another look at it. And the Own Farrell case was only the third time that that particular rule has been exercised. So it is since about, I can't remember when the, when the rule was introduced in around 2014 or 15. I was involved in, in crafting it, but it, it is very infrequently utilised, but it is for those serious cases. Okay.
0: So, and so it stood up ultimately when it was kind of put through the ringer, because it was kind of put through the ringer at that stage. You know, there was all sorts of press conferences and a lot of tutting from, you know, English rugby at the time, etc.
2: Well, look, at the end of the day, the decision that came out was one that the, the panel who who, uh, who who decided it felt was appropriate. I think all cases involving international players in the run-up to a Rugby World Cup where they are selected for or likely to be selected for the national team are serious and significant. And there is a principle going through that everyone should be treated fairly and appropriately and the rules applied similarly although not all cases are the same clearly and I think that's one of the ethical principles uh, that you saw being enforced by world rugby so regardless of what the outcome was ever going to be the fact that they interceded and stepped in and said we don't agree with what happened that was the point you've seen that in the past as well uh, with um, cases in in Australia and actually involving uh, New Zealand as well yes okay
1: yeah, for um, one of the things that when when you're learning about arbitration that they always say is a great advantage is the, 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 the privacy that they're generally held in private. But I mean, obviously, a lot of the sports issues would be that people will be aware, certainly, that disputes are happening. Are the disputes always held behind closed doors?
3: Um, well, yes. So speaking about the GAA, yes, the hearing itself is heard in private but um, when the GA set up the code, the Dispute Resolution Code, they decided that the decisions should not be private and that that there should be some level of jurisprudence and precedential value to the hearings. And in fact, uh, in Congress 2022, two, which which came into being then in 2023, the official guide was changed so that decisions of uh, hearings committees, for, like the, the committee that I sit on, the Central Hearings Committee and Central Appeals Committee, where they went against the referee, where they made a decision that was different to the decision that had been made by the referee, the hearings committee had to give a written reason for that. And I suppose that was in response to some criticism. Where decisions that had been made on the field were then overturned by hearings committees and appeals committees, and nobody really knew why, mm-hmm. um, and there was a lot of criticism of that—that that it wasn't seen to be transparent. So I think that's a good. Uh,
1: so you now have a, a body of case law together with the reasons. That's it.
3: Right. Yes.
1: And are you able to talk about any of the kind of the the high profile decisions that have been made, or sort of you know some interesting cases that have been have have sort of gone before the board?
3: Yeah, um well, I suppose I'd talk maybe about the very first case that mm-hmm. came before the disputes, Resu- or the disputes resolution authority in 2005 and uh, it relates to um uh, Mark Vaughan who GA listeners will know as a, a blonde bombshell from a code, code croaks, that's right. So, uh, and it was a real test of the of the code and the the tribunal at the time. He was playing um, for Kilmacould. in fact, had played in the Dublin County Championship. They had won the County Championship and he went on to play for Leinster uh, in the Leinster Club Championship and they played against Port Leash. Now, they lost against Port Leash, but he was sent off on a straight red card um, in in the course of that game. And he received a, four, a four-week suspension with a one-match ban. Now, the next match in the same competition, which is the rule or was the rule at that time, would have brought him back to the club competitions for Kilmacud in the Dublin County Championship. So it was unclear whether he couldn't then play for Kilmacud in the Dublin County Championship, because on one level, maybe that was a different competition than the interprovincial competition. So he referred that question to the GAA, and ultimately that came before the Dispute Resolution Authority. And in the end, they decided in his favour, they felt that the dispute Resolution Authority felt that the Interprovincial Club Championship, if you like, was different than the Dublin Club Championship for reasons that they set out in the decision. Uh, so and so th- if the
1: infraction happens in one particular championship, then the penalty applies to that championship rather than the other
3: one. Exactly, exactly, right. exactly. So it was a good test yeah, of the yeah. code at that time. Uh, it meant he was able to play then for mm. again the following year, which probably right. didn't suit St Bridget's, who they played against. Yeah. But yeah, and and it, and it proved that the code worked. Now it, it then Congress the following year amended those rules then to make sure that the you
0: should really be sponsored by the newspapers though, shouldn't you? Because I mean that the, the coverage they get oh, yeah. out of waiting for your decisions, Efa. You know what I mean? <laughs> Every day, what's going to happen? Is it going? Is the suspension going to be overturned? Will he, she be able to turn out? Yeah. I uh, know it's, 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 it's fascinating stuff. I mean, it's, it's very, the stakes are really high. I know I said that earlier, but the stakes are really high for, for these players uh, and consideration has to be given. Okay, Susan, can I ask you a question about sanctions? Okay. And as Ifa said, and, you know, as I said, I have some limited experience myself. Sometimes you're boxed in by sanctions. But what about proportionality? And I'm thinking of one very high profile rugby player who received a very severe sanction at one stage for a match. So therefore, there was an X amount of match ban given to this individual as a result of that. But the timing affected his ability to, let's say, become a Lions player because it overlapped with the start of, let's say, a Lions tour. People might know who I'm talking about. But anyway, I'm just saying, isn't that very unfair in one way? Whereas if he got, let's say, nine weeks or 12 weeks or whatever it was, six weeks at a different time of the year, the punishment and the penalty would have been a lot less. Do you know what I mean?
2: I know the question that you're asking me, but I don't agree with the premise because in point of fact, that's all taken into account as part of the sanctioning criteria, because you get suspended based on when you're participating in matches. So if you get suspended in the last match of the season, your weeks don't count in between in the off season. So it is scheduled participation in a match and so therefore you look at the season. And as I mentioned earlier, all matches in rugby are the same. So whether it's a Lions match or it's a a club match, they are treated the same. And the rules make that explicitly clear so that a player knows when they're going in, if they're they're going to engage in behaviour that has a potential to result in infraction, they know this means every match. There's going to be no slicing and dicing depending on what competition it is.
0: So, really so you wouldn't linear. be amenable to my sad story?
2: <laughs> well, it depends if I was arguing <laughs> for <before> you or <laughs> against you. Yeah.
0: No, but I just, you know, it's just, it's just the way that, that kind of the cards fall. And I, I do accept that there has to be kind of certainty. There has to be certainty for games. I, I 100% agree with that. Nifa, you made that point really well. But just sometimes the sanctions because of the time of year can be a bit more punitive, you know. And but that's as you as you your, boohoo, you, clean, you know. Okay, yeah, behave, behave. That's yeah. that's that's the solution. Well,
1: can I ask a question that I'm sure a lot of our listeners would like to know? If you are a member of the legal profession and you want to get involved in sports arbitration, is there a sort of an obvious opportunity? Is there training that you can do? And what, what, how would you how would you go about it?
2: I think there is now compared to before. There was no pathway before. People just kind of landed in it. I certainly landed in it. Um, but there is much more structure now. You can you can study it at university. Um, there are also boutique firms, particularly in the United Kingdom, who specialise only in sport. There are law firms here who have um, departments of sport. But I think you need to see that sport is not just what happens on the field and behaviour. There's a whole economic and commercial side to sport, which is, um, you know, you certainly see it in sponsorship departments of big companies. You know, the fact that you have world rugby here in Ireland, you have international federations in Switzerland and so on who have international lawyers. So it depends, I suppose, on you know, are you more interested in the commercial side of sport or are you more interested in the regulatory side? And there are ways and means. But again, it takes time. And I would always say that sports lawyers are really generalists first and then they apply that general knowledge within the context of sport. And would you have the same experience?
3: Yeah, and I think, um, Mark, um, certainly the specialist bar associations definitely help, particularly for, for barristers, who want to get into a particular area, no matter what the area is. So we have a very active sports law bar association. Susan is a former chair. And certainly that gives you the opportunity to showcase your your experience and your talent and give you a bit of a platform for it. So I think um, specialist bar associations are very helpful from that point of view.
0: Can, can I jump in, Eva? I can't let you go without asking about the tug of war. <laughs> 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 and we are an internationally very successful country participating in of War. I think we're we're elite there was a family from Wexford, wasn't there, with kind of eleven teen brothers who used to used to pull. I remember they were they were legendary once upon a time.
3: The <laughs> 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 but
0: anyway, um no, but like you know, every sport I suppose requires arbitration when a dispute arises. It doesn't matter what type of sport it is. That's it. Whether yeah. it's eighty thousand people in Crow Park are a sport that might be in the on the village green sort of yeah,
3: thing. Yeah, gymnastics. Everything, yes. all all different areas. Um, if there's a rule book and if there's a set of principles by which people expect to play fairly, then there's a role for arbitration or some kind of disputes resolution of some sort in it.
1: Okay, all right, Mark. I think we're, we're up to the we're,
3: time of our final important a final question. question. Um, this
1: is yeah, um, absolutely, which, which we have to put to each of you. Have you a a book or a film you'd like to recommend to our uh, listeners?
2: Yeah, I think that the last book that I read was uh, Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus, which is, you know, ni- California, 1960s. Uh, that was a particular era, particularly when you were a woman and trying to juggle family and career and so on. And I think, and it's actually very funny. Lessons in Chemistry. Lessons it's in it's, Chemistry. It's a
1: memoir or
2: a no, novel? No, it's, it's a novel. Oh, right. Novel. Yeah, but it's, okay. it's a it's, recent it's, novel, is it? It's yeah, a recent yeah, yeah. novel. Okay. And it's also just Great been lessons. made
3: into a Netflix series so uh, let's see
1: Yeah. And Ife, have you a book or a film?
3: Um, well, this is where I'm going to bring my Mead background. <laughs> uh, one of the best books I've read over the years was uh, Liam Hayes' autobiography, who was a former midfield All-Ireland winner, twice All-Ireland winner for uh, for Mead. And he was a journalist, he is still a journalist. And uh, his book was excellent. He talked, uh, he had a, a sad history with um, a brother who had committed suicide. And he talks about that in the book and he talks about Sean Boylan, one of the greatest Mead men ever, uh, I think. Even Peter would agree oh, I with
0: that. To say, here, here, <laughs> absolutely, here, here. Yeah,
3: so I, I really enjoyed. That. Out of our skins was not our the book, yeah, no, spectacular book, very honest brilliant. book, yeah, and
0: yeah. a great insight. And yeah. Liam had his own way of thinking about, yes, about yeah. games, didn't he? Yes, and yes. he also could write brilliantly because he was oh. a wonderful feature writer with the Sunday Press. Yeah, well, that's right. way back and that's right, ever yeah. since.
3: Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah that's that's okay. Absolutely. Proud me, man. Absolutely. Okay. Well, folks, this has been really fantastic we've really enjoyed our discussion today I know there's a lot of our colleagues out there who'll be listening to that Mm. I think the Sports Bar Association is going to get a lot of contact (laughs) after this because uh, like people love sport and they love to help out and it is very important that you have people who are able to adjudicate on disputes and do them properly it's in the interest of the game and it's just it's just a really really important aspect of sport I think so thank you Aoife and thank you Susan for coming in and being guests on the Fifth Court today
3: The Fifth Court
0: will adjourn until next week. So that's all from this edition of The Fifth Court. We hope you have enjoyed it. Can I say a huge thank you to our colleagues Eva Farrelly and Susan O'Hearn for coming in and talking to us about the world of arbitration in Sportmark?
1: Yeah, yeah, it was really interesting and particularly the um, the opportunities that they say are available for our colleagues. I mean, I think there's now a Sports power Association. So I think it's, it's, an, it's a I growing that's area. that's going to have great appeal. Yeah, Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Really, really interesting interview and both are operating at the highest level. So it was a wonderful mm-hmm. insight into this yeah. area of law, which maybe we don't discuss as much as we should. So before we go, I would like to say a huge thank you to our producer, Cunnel O'Moroyne and also to Lee Brennan of the Dublin South Podcast Studios for doing such a wonderful job in recording. This episode. So, for me, Peter Leonard, myself, Mark Topman. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon in the Fifth Court. Never miss a vital Irish legal judgment. Check out Decisis Law Reports, where you'll find a fully indexed collection of all Irish judgments
1: delivered since 2011. Visit Decisis.ie to find out more.